0: Well, it's good to be back in town. Thank you for filling in, Matt, and leading us last week. And I'm going to follow up where he left off in John chapter 12. And this is literally a sermon prepared in the heavenlies, because I was 30,000 foot in the air when I (laughs) did the outline on the sermon on a plane. Lots of planes and plane delays, but I'm here back home. So, tonight we are going to learn about the Father of Lights. And hopefully you've been seeing that Jesus has been, from the very beginning of His ministry to even tonight, He's been focused on one message, and that is the Father of Lights. He's been lifting up the Father consistently. And the context here is, you know, Mary has just anointed Jesus with her best. And God is about to give us his best, his son, to die on the cross in a few, di- few weeks, uh, a few days, sorry, uh, after this passage. And we're entering the, Jesus' final Passover. He's had three Passovers during his earthly ministry, and this is the last one. And we're going to see the big idea tonight will be that Jesus' earthly mission was to proclaim and fulfill the Father's offer of eternal life. Jesus' earthly mission was to proclaim and fulfill the Father's offer of eternal life. So how many of you have uh, played UnO? All right? It's a fun game. It's very competitive in the Patrick household. In fact, all games in the Patrick household are competitive. And those who visit us as well, right? Um, playing a game Tuesday night, right? four of you in here so guys we got to beat the women this time by the way (laughs) and you know it's a fun game right there's strategy involved there's the four colors of psychology there's numbers and mathematics there's pattern recognition social skills are built um but there's one card that we really like in the game right it's the wild card right and what's this card useful for Well, it allows you to change the color to any color you want on the deck, right? When it's your turn. And so it's a powerful card because it can change the gameplay for the entire game. Tonight, we're gonna see this is a wild card chapter because after this chapter, nothing will be the same. It's gonna change the game of life for eternity. And there's some quote wild things happening in this chapter. You're going to see Jesus' last words in public are going to be professed in this chapter. You're going to see a very unique metaphor about wheat wheat used only in this chapter, nowhere else in the New Testament or even in the Old Testament. We're going to hear the voice of God for the third time in the Gospels. We're going to have a temporal transition all the way through the New Testament so far in Jesus' ministry. He's been saying, no, now is not the time. Now is not the time. Now is not the time. And now he's going to say, it's time. And we'll see what it's time for in a minute. And then this chapter is going to set us up for fulfilling the prophecies in the Old Testament. It's a wild card chapter. A lot's going to happen. And praise God, eternity will not be the same after this chapter. And I hope to show you that tonight the first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the first few verses verses 12 through 19 we're going to see a prophetic entrance and this entrance is actually presented in all four Gospels not unique to John and this entrance is very important that's why all four Gospels are presenting the triumphal entry so let me read the verses first 12 through 19 the next day next day after what Next day after, Mary has anointed Jesus, right? And they've had the dinner together and with Lazarus and everybody. And the, and the Jews are wanting to plot his death. And Lazarus' death as well, right? So this is the next day. The large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey... And sat on it, just as is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, and after they received the Holy Spirit, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Mm, may that be so. So Jesus now has traveled from Bethany to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. And you have this triumphal entry. The people are praising him. And they, they have this phrase, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They are quoting Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 is sung every morning in the temple during special occasions like the Passover. And it's a Psalm that anticipates or looking for the Messiah to come to be the victor for Israel. So I, I um, ask you in your community groups or in your own private uh, Bible study, read Psalm 118 and study that. We don't have time tonight to go into that in detail. Because well, my wife does not want to give me two, doesn't want me to give two or three sermons in one, so. <laughs> but, they sing the psalm every morning as in the temple, looking for the Messiah. And you have to realize, it's been 500 years, five centuries, they've been under foreign power. 586, they were conquered by the Babylonians. Remember King Nebuchadnezzar? In 539, the Persians attack and overcome the Babylonians. 334, Alexander the Great comes in and conquers the Persians. He dies, in 323, his kingdom is split up, and so the Seleucids or Syrians come in and take over Jerusalem. 64 BC, the Romans come in and take over. So for 500 years, the Jewish people have been under foreign power. They are ready for a Messiah to come, right? They're looking for him. Is he going to come this century? Is he going to come this year? Right? It's been 500 years. They are ready. And they've seen Jesus, and they've seen what he can do. They've heard about the miracles. They know about him raising Lazarus to life. They see him confounding the Pharisees, the religious leaders, right? They, they can't outwit him or out quote scripture with him or anything like that. They say, is he the one? And they believe he is, right? To the point that they're coming out with palm branches, And you may wonder, why are they using palm branches? Um, Is it just because they're available everywhere in the Middle East? It's more than that. See, in the Middle Eastern culture, a palm branch was a symbol for victory, triumph, and peace. It's now actually the symbol of Israel's independence. And if you look at ancient coins and shields and iconography, you'll see that the palm branch is there embedded in, in Israel's culture. The symbol of its independence. Christian iconography or pictures and things like that you'll see that it is a symbol is a victory of the spirit over the flesh And you think back to Revelation 7 9 that passage talks about every nation tribe and language will be there in heaven how are they dressed in white robes and what are they holding palm branches right because Jesus has overcome victory of the spirit over the flesh and so they're putting these palm branches down because he is victor. He is the Messiah coming in to save who's, to save Israel. And they proclaim Hosanna. And this phrase uh, is in all four Gospels. Um, they, call it, they are quoting the Old Testament. And if you're like me, you probably thought Hosanna back in the past, I thought this, that Hosanna was an um, acclamation of praise, right? Like we say hallelujah or hallelujah. And when Susanna was, what, six months old, um, we were in Spring Baptist Church then, and they would sing, every time they sang Hosanna to the highest, right, she would get all excited and start clapping because she thought they were singing about her, Susanna, Hosanna. Um, And so we always love that little story because she got really excited and animated as the preschool teacher was holding her in there in the service. Because she was crying in the back room, they had to bring her into service. (laughs) But every time we said Hosanna or sang that, she just clapped, thinking, they're all clapping for me, singing about me. But this is not a praise term. It's a plea for salvation. Where do we get that? It's later in Psalm 118, verses 25 through 26. It says, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. To say we pray, it's more than just we pray and bow our head and praying. It's we beseech you, we implore you, we're pleading with you, send us our salvation. That Hebrew word yasha means to deliver, and ona means to beg, beseech, yasha, ona, hosanna. It really means to plead, to deliver us, so they're crying out, God, let this be the Messiah, please save us. They're thinking from Roman rule, right? Of course, Jesus has much more in store. Later in in Matthew, later that same day, the children come to Jesus, right, and what did they say? They exclaim, "Hosanna to the Son of David!" People are still throughout the entire day are yelling, "Hosanna to Jesus! Jesus, please save us! Be our Messiah!" And so they are crying out salvation, which is exactly why Jesus came, right? And in mm-hmm. a week's time, He will be on the cross to do that. And He rides into town in and what? In and a donkey. Now, and this verse 13 is a quote from Zechariah 9-9, prophesying that he would enter Jerusalem as the Messiah, riding on a donkey. You'll remember from some of the other gospels that Jesus had sent the disciples ahead of time to prepare the way, right, to, to get that colt ready. And so this is that same colt of a donkey that's ready for him to ride in. And this is, think about it, this is the king of kings, lord of the lords, was there at the beginning of creation, and he's coming in on a lowly commoner's donkey, he could have come in on a mighty horse. He could have come in on a dragon. Could have come in on a dinosaur, fiery chariot. Whatever he wanted, he could have come in on. He chose a lowly, commoning donkey. Why is that? See, Jesus is really interested here at this moment to usher in a spiritual kingdom and not a military kingdom. That's why he didn't come in into a white horse, right? That would mean victory and judgment. You know, a war horse, a conqueror, a king. He was that, but he's coming on a donkey as a man of peace, as a savior. Later on, and it was, if you fast forward to Revelation 19, he comes on what? He comes on that white horse, right? As conqueror and judge. But right now, he's coming as a man of peace, of salvation. He's practicing and showing us humility, not entitlement, right? He doesn't have this t- entitlement attitude. He could easily have wanted that, right? Jesus' name is glorified among others, God says, right? King, king, lord of the lords. But no, he comes on a lowly donkey. And the people who are praising him, are excited, ecstatic. And Jesus is not stopping them this time, right? He's letting them go on because the time is now, as we'll see later. And then you see in verse 19, the Pharisees, remember, this is crowded Jerusalem, right? People from all over the world are here for Passover. And people now are not focused, in per se, in the temple. They're looking at Jesus and celebrating him. And the Pharisees say in verse 19, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. We'll see in a moment, this is why the time was right for Jesus to go to the cross. Because the world, not just the Jews, but all the nations were focused on him as being the Christ, the Savior. They're following him. And you know that, or the Pharisees, right? Even more, because they want all the glory, right? But no, Jesus is getting, no matter what they do, he's getting the glory. Spoiler alert, no matter what they do, he will always get the glory, right? As we will see. Now, between verse 19 and 20, a couple of days transpire, right? So John is not giving us everything that happened that week. So, if you look at the other gospels, it fills in what happens between verse 19 and 20. You see that um, Jesus cleanses the temple for the second time. Okay. This is a house of prayer. Cleans out the merchants and money changers. Um, You'll see him, the barren fig tree. He talks about that, prophesying again about Jerusalem. Parables of the two sons, parables of the wicked husband, uh, parables of the wedding garment, parable of the ten virgins, uh, parable of the talents. And the widow's might. All that happens between verse 19 and verse 20. Okay? So if you go to a synoptic of the Gospels, you can see a chart, and you see what happens in the historical timeline. A lot's happened, right? And then we get to verse 20. Now look at verse 20 through 26. We're going to see there's reward and recognition from who? From the Father. Remember, that's who Jesus is focusing on, the Father. We will reward and recognition from the Father. So let me read verses 20 through 26. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Keep in mind, these are Greeks going to a Jewish festival. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. How's that for evangelism? Somebody comes up to you and says, I want to see Jesus. That makes it really easy, right? Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You have some Greeks who are approaching a man with a Greek name, Philip, who came from a Greek city, Bethsaida. And they're saying, we want to see Jesus. This is amazing, right? These aren't Jewish individuals. These are Greeks. Jesus' name has been spreading, right, of what he's doing and who he is. And so they approach Philip. And remember, Andrew is part of Jesus' core. So Philip goes to Andrew and said, these want to see Jesus. So they take him to him. And they ask him a question, right? We want to see you. And Jesus looks at them and says something interesting. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He doesn't say now is not the time. He has said that before at the wedding feast in Cana. He said now is not the time. He said it at the feast of Booths. Now is not the time. He said it at, um, after the passage with the woman caught in adultery. Jesus said now is not the time. He's always disappearing and getting out of the hands of the Pharisees and hiding right from the people. But now, he says, now is the time. Well, why is it now? Because the Greeks, the other nations have come forward to say, I want to meet this Jesus. By the way, this phrase here, now is the time. It's come, time has come. In the Greek, it's in the perfect tense, which means this hour has come and stays with us. I.e., there's no going back on it. It cannot be undone. The clock starts here for salvation and our spiritual freedom. This clock starts here for our spiritual kingdom to be ushered in. It cannot be undone. And then there's this interesting wheat metaphor, right? Now, on one hand, you say, well, they are in a agrarian society, right? They understand harvest and things like that. But you've got to remember, he was talking to these are Greeks. He's not talking to the Jews who knew about wheat harvest, not talking to the Jews who knew about grain offerings and things like that. These are Greeks coming to him, and he gives them a story about wheat that you see nowhere else in the scripture about this wheat dying and being more fruitful and so forth. What does all that mean? Why is he doing that? Well, in every pagan culture and there's mythology right and in every story there's a god who dies and is reborn in greek mythology in in greece it's adonis in egypt it's osiris in persia it's mithra in rome it's bacchus and in a norse mythology it's balder you're like who is balder i am right okay okay hey you're listening good okay who is balder so you've heard you've all seen marvel movies you know who odin is and thor and loki right Odin is dad, he has two sons, Thor and Loki. He has another son that you don't know about, and his name is Baldr. And in the Norse poetry called Edda, you learn about Baldr. He is called the Bleeding God because he dies after having a spear thrust into his side because of Loki's mischief. Loki's always up to mischief, right? So a spear is thrust into Baldr. But the story is that Baldr will be reborn and that with his rebirth, he will bring in a new, renewed world. Someone is stuck in a side with a spear, dies, reborn, new world. Does that sound like a familiar story to you? Like, like Jesus, right? Every culture, you have this story, just like you have a, a flood narrative, every culture as well. Why is that? Well, God has built us, right? A certain way, a certain DNA, these stories, right? And so you have these, all these mythologies with all these pagan cultures about a God who will die and will be reborn. And it's always associated with the cycle of the wheat harvest. To worship these gods, what you do, you bring your wheat and your grain and you worship them at the cycle of the wheat harvest. And you see that even Ceres, the goddess of grain, the Roman goddess of grain, Cere, where we get the word cereal. Okay? It's traced all the way down to what we use nowadays. Jesus is telling him, when they're telling this story, he's saying, I am the one who truly dies and is truly reborn. I'm your mythology who's become truth. I'm the one who's going to die and be reborn, and something will be more fruitful from that, right? Our salvation. And Jesus is telling them, I'm dying not just for the Jews, I'm dying for all nations, for the Greeks too. I'm not just the Messiah, the Christ for Jews, I'm Messiah Christ for the entire world. Amen, or we would not be here, right? Because I don't think anybody else sitting here has Jewish or Jewish heritage. We We are all Greeks, right? Gentiles. Whoever loves his life loses it, whoever hates his life, verse 25, hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, normally we reserve this word hate, right, for something really strong. Jesus is not saying, I want you to just literally despise or hate your life. He's saying, I don't want you to hold on to it, right? We just sang in the song, give up lesser things for greater gains, right? That's what he's wanting to do. I, I want you to hold loosely the things in the world. I don't want you to hold on them more than me, I, don't, I want you to hate the things in the world so that you follow me. Because if you do that, you're going to get a greater gift, right? And what is that greater gift? Verse 25, the end of it, eternal life. I would say that's pretty much a good gift, right? More than a fast car, more than billions of dollars, right? Eternal life. Specifically with God the Father. And then he says what? In verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Hmm. To serve someone. We don't like to serve people, right? In general. Humanity doesn't. Right? It requires a heart change. We like to be served, right? Not to serve in general. Christians, of course... We are called to be servant leaders. We are called to serve one another and serve Jesus Christ. This isn't forced slavery. It's, it's where the, I want to, as a servant, I want to be in the presence of Jesus. I want to serve him, right? I willingly give up and submit to him because I, I want to. He's not forcing me into service. That's truly my heart bent. I want to serve him. I want to be close to the master. And Jesus reminds us the reward here from the Father is eternal life. And then there's recognition. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now think about that. I'm serving Jesus, abiding with him. Bible tells us we're just dust, right? Sinful dust. But God's going to recognize me. He's going to honor me. This is the God who created everything. He's going to honor me. He's going to honor you. Does he not know what I did in life, what I think, what I do, my shortcomings? Yes, he does. But he's going to honor us because of who we follow, Jesus Christ. It's not because of anything we do. It's because of Christ in us that he honors us. Pretty mind-blowing, right? That God the Father of all creation, of the universe, is going to honor us. Put your name in that blank. It's a lot to live up to, huh? We can't do it on our own, right? That's why he gives us the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus died on a cross for us. Verse 27 through 36. You see the assurance from and adoption by the Father. That's where God's going to step in, literally, and speak. We're going to assurance from and adoption by the Father. Let me read this passage. Jesus is saying, some time goes between uh, verse 26 and 27 as well. He says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Remember, Jesus knows what's happening. He knows he's going to die on the cross. He he knows what he's going to endure. This is before the Garden of Gethsemane. okay? We're not there yet. We'll get there in a few chapters. Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice was come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Crazy question, right? Jesus has been answering that from the very beginning. <laughs> so Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtakes you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Jesus has a troubled spirit. Why? Yes, he's the son of God, but he's also human, right? He's God incarnate. He took on our human likeness. He's stressed, right? He knows what's coming. And he's saying, Shh, Do I not do this? And he says, No, right? For this purpose, I have been sent here. I'm going to go forward with this. I'm going to obey the Father. He obeys. And he's rewarded, right? The Father, what? He gives him assurance. A voice comes from heaven. We've only seen it two other times. Once as a baptism and once at transfiguration. And now this third time here. In all three, God does what? He assures Jesus. This is my son. I am well pleased. I glorify his name. So we have the assurance that he is the son of God. I mean, God just said so. <laughs> Literally from heaven, Right? Forget all the, <laughs> the uh, miracle he's done, all the signs. God himself has just spoken. This is my son. As he has been saying consistently in his ministry. Then he says the, the ruler of this world is going to be cast out in verse 31, right? So Satan is the great adversary. We know that. Satan's tried to tempt Jesus before, right, in the desert, trying to get him to renounce his lordship and kingship. And Jesus does not do that. Satan all along the way has been trying to take out Jesus from killing all the babies in Bethlehem and so forth, right? Constantly trying to get Jesus off his purpose. Because if he can do that, then he wins. But here it says he loses. (laughs) He's been cast out. He's been cast out having any authority over God's people at this point. Jesus conquering death, that seals the deal for Satan, right? He cannot win. We all know the end of the story. He has no authority over anybody in this room. Do you hear that? Satan has no authority over anybody in this room. Because you belong to Jesus if you ask him to be your Lord and Savior. Jesus says, I'm going to be lifted up in verse 32. And it has a double meaning, right? He's going to be literally lifted up in elevation on the cross. And then he's going to be lifted up in exaltation, his glory for what he does. It means both things. It's also alluding to what happened in the Old Testament, right? When the bronze snake was lifted up and people were healed, when they looked at it, same vision here. He's intentionally pointing back to the Old Testament. Because we're going to see Jesus is, quote, the new Moses that God prophesied. Now, the people were taught from the law in the Old Testament that the triumph of the Messiah would be, well, forever. And so they're a little confused. What do you mean they're going to be lifted up, that he's going to die? I thought you were going to be live forever. What does all this mean? You know, they haven't read Psalm 22 or Psalm 53, which predicts the suffering servant. They've looked at other passages like Psalm 89 and Psalm 110, Isaiah uh, 9, Ezekiel 37 and Daniel 7, which all say, the Messiah's reign will be forever. And it will be. And it is, praise the Lord. But he's going to suffer first, right? He's going to die so there will be fruit. And they ask him, how can this be? And you notice Jesus never really answers them, right? He starts talking about light. Yeah, Jesus is like, you know, I've already answered this question a million times. Okay, the real thing I want you to learn is about this, this light, right? That's what's important. Not that I'm going to be lifted up and die. That's not what's important. You're looking at the pine cone. I want you to look at the forest. The important thing is about light. I've been saying that from the beginning of John, right? Jesus is light. So what does he mean? Light is God's essence in his personality. It's his holy character. That's what it refers to. And we've read already that God is the author of light. There's no darkness in him. And we are called to be lights. As we saw in James 1, 17 through 18, we are called to be lights. He's the father of lights, of us. I mean, the light is in us. We saw that already in John. As we went through John, John 1.4 says, In him was life, and the life that was the light of men. For uh, John 1.9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. The light that gives to who? To everyone. John 8.12, again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We are the light, the father of lights that James is talking about. It's us, Believers. Because we have light, and we'll talk about what that means. Because he says, I want you to be sons and daughters of light, all right? Now, this, this is a Semitic idiom, right? To be son of something. Barabbas, son of Abbas, all right? Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, okay? Bar-light, son of light, is what he's saying. It means that I have the characteristics of my father, He wants us to be sons of light. He wants us to have the characteristics and essence and character of God. We are to be holy. Tells us in Peter, right? Be holy for I am holy. This this phrase, son of light, is only used one other place. And that's June, uh, June. (laughs) Luke 16, 8. 1 Thessalonians 5, Ephesians 5, also says children of light, all saying the same thing. We are to emanate the character of God. I cannot do that on my own, and neither can you. We can only do it with Christ in us and dwelling in the Holy Spirit, i.e. we who are living in spiritual darkness have been redeemed and adopted as sons and daughters of light. It's nothing I've done. God has adopted us into his family. He gives an assurance and gives us adoption. That's why we say we are all brothers and sisters in Christ, because we've been adopted in God's family. I had two earthly-born sisters, but I have millions of spiritual brothers and sisters around the world. I can't afford to give everybody a birthday card, but okay. (laughs) That's too many. (laughs) And then what does Jesus do? He makes an interesting thing. He does an interesting thing. He, he exits. you see that in verses 36 through 43? A prophetic exit. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Jesus goes and hides. (laughs) To what? To fulfill prophecy. Why does he have to fulfill prophecy? Because God keeps his promises. He keeps his covenant promises. He's going to fulfill the prophecy. And so the first one we see here in verse um, 38 is from Isaiah 53.1. You'll recognize Isaiah fifty-three. That's the suffering servant passage, right? Describes Jesus' death on the cross. Hundreds of years before it happens, by the way. That phrase, who will believe the reports? See, Isaiah anticipates how strange and contradictory it seems that the suffering Messiah that he describes, who has a marred visage um, and he suffers, is the same person that will save Israel and cleanse the nations. How can that be, this person who goes through all this suffering, how can that be the Savior? Isaiah is saying, they, they will not believe that report. It doesn't make sense, logically, humanly. Exactly, all right? Only from God's standpoint. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The second part of that verse. The arm of the Lord is, is his strength, his power, and his might. Yet we will see the Messiah weak and suffering. Right? You remember the crucifixion story, but we'll be getting into more detail. He was beat, spat upon, hit by whips, died on the cross, excruciating death, speared, nailed. Is that the might and strength of God? We know the answer is yes, right? Because of what Jesus did for us. See, the, the power of God will be expressed in the midst of the suffering, the seemingly weak Messiah. He was not weak. He was willing to offer himself on the cross to conquer death. That's where we get the term meekness, right? It's strength under control. That's what Jesus did. He was strength under control. And then John is telling us, despite all the signs of wonders and even hearing the voice of God, the people still did not believe. Remember verse 37, though he had done so many signs and before them they still did not believe. Remember that when you go share the gospel. Jesus, master pastor, right? Even he did not get 100% response, right? So take the pressure off yourself. Not everybody is gonna say yes when you proclaim the gospel. They didn't for Jesus and they're not gonna be for you. All he asks us to do is share the gospel, and leave the rest up to the spirit, OK? No one is asking you to get 100 percent success. It's not going to happen. Take that pressure off. Just share the gospel. Then in verse 40, he's quoting from that passage we love, Isaiah 6, at least we like, we like the first part, right? Then Isaiah is going into the temple, sees the train or the robe of God. He's just overwhelmed with the glory, can't even speak. Because he's a man of unclean lips, so an angel takes a hot coal, right? Cleanses him so he can speak. He falls down glorifying God. And God says, you know, I, I need somebody to go prophesy for me. And Isaiah is just overwhelmed He says, I'll do it, send me, <laughs> All right? And then we get to verse 6 and 10, I mean, verse 9 and 10. When God's, I'm going to summarize. God says, I want you to go, but they're not going to listen to you, <laughs> I want you to go prophesy, they're not going to listen to you. (laughs) You want me to go, but they're not going to listen? Yes. He tells them to go to preach to the people who wouldn't respond. Why? So their guilt would be certain. Right? God is acting in judgment. He's not binding things against their will, right? They have chosen to do evil. They have chosen to not believe. This is their own deliberate choice. And in verse forty-one, John is really understanding Isaiah in its proper scope. He's, that Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus. He knew who he saw. It's Jesus incarnate. But still, we have believers who are on people who are not, not believers. People who are not believing. Now, we have some authorities here in verse 42 that say they believed who he was. Yes, he's the son of God, but I don't want to confess it because the uh, Jewish leaders will kick me out of the temple forever. Remember the blind man, his parents? They were concerned about the same thing, right? They were questioning. They said, I don't ask my son. They were fearful that they would be excommunicated from the temple for life, which for a Jew, that was a big deal, right? Same thing with these authorities. And you see verse 40, they love the glory that comes from man more than what comes from God. They fail to realize that honoring, that recognition, right? And that reward from God. And then we end here in verses 44 through 50. We see that unity with and submission to the Father. Again, we're focusing on the Father. that's what Jesus is doing. Unity with and submission to the Father. Let me read verses 44 through 50. By the way, these are the last words that Jesus speaks publicly. The rest of the chapter in John, we see he's only talking to the disciples, edifying them, preparing them, pouring into them as a shepherd. And Jesus cried out and said, "'Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light.'" so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me was himself given me a command. What to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is really a summary of all that Jesus has been consistently saying in three years I am the Son of God, unity. Father and I are one. I am speaking what the Father tells me, and I'm doing what he commands me, submission to the Father, unity and submission. He's been consistent. Three three years, and so this is his summary. He's crying out one last time. See, Jesus came to be Savior, he says. Not judge. His word is judge. Do you see that? The word of God will be judge. And we get a picture of that in Revelation 1, 6. What, What does John, again, same author, what does John see? His vision of Jesus Jesus stand there brilliant white eyes of fire what's coming out of his mouth a double edged sword right it's the word of god that will be the judge see the same thing in revelation 19 this is the white throne of judgment and he's there with what a sword in his mouth he's going to judge us by the word of god Jesus saves. Word of God is what can fix us, right? And judges us. See, the, it, Jesus coming back was not necessary. He was just judge. He didn't have to have, be incarnate. Didn't have to marry his humanity with a deity to judge us. God's word does it already. Right? It's what the law did. But to save us, he had to take on human form to overcome the penalty of our sins. And we know from John 3, we know 3, John three sixteen very well, right? But John three seventeen is equally important because it says that Jesus, what? He came, what? Not to condemn the world, but to save it. We say the same thing in John chapter 4 earlier. When we look at that passage, he said, I came to save the world. Not save, just the Jews. He tells the woman, well, I came to save the world, all nations. And he's obeying God's command, which we should not be surprised at, because in Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 through 19, God is talking to Moses. And he says, I will raise up from for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among your brothers, from your lineage, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself were required of him. And that's what Jesus has done, right? He has done all the Lord has commanded. He has spoken all that God has said. He is the new Moses, right? Come to overcome the law and to fulfill prophecy. Big idea, remember, Jesus' earthly mission was to proclaim and fulfill the Father's glory and his offer of eternal life. That's what Jesus came. I came to save you. I came to give you eternal life. Reward and recognition from the Father, assurance from and adoption by the Father, unity with and submission to the Father. Jesus has been consistent. So what do we do with this passage? This, this passage just really changes everything. It's a tr- big transition point. The first thing I think we see is that we need to trust God's sovereign plan. God is fulfilling prophecy through Jesus. There's over 300 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament that are all completely fulfilled. And Jesus we see here is the resolution, resolution of two narrative or two stories. We see he's the resolution of Israel's story. He is the Messiah, Christ they've been waiting for. Also for all the nations, all the pagan nations, He's the completion of their story as well. He's the savior. He's that myth become truth. He's their savior as well. You see, God is faithful to keep his promises. He is faithful to keep his covenants. His plan has always, always, always been Revelation 7, 9. Every nation, tribe, and tongue. Not just the Jews. C.S. Lewis was... Many of you know, he a famous Christian writer and thinker of the last century. Um, you may not know, he was an expert in medieval literature and mythology before he became a Christian. And that's what he studied. And he was part of the Inklings. Uh, those individuals got together to talk about fantasy writing. So he got together with Tolkien and others uh, at, a, at a drinking establishment at a... <laughs> Um, You can still go there and visit it. Um, But he was always fascinated by Norse mythology. It was his favorite. And in particular, he was always fascinated by the tale of Balder, the bleeding God. See, one of the obstacles for C.S. Lewis to coming to faith was the similarity between our Christian narrative here and the mythologies. That this death and resurrection theme. Because he said that since paganists were assumed to be false, he wondered why Christianity should be treated any differently. Because he's looking at it from a literary standpoint, right? What's the difference? It was an obstacle to him coming to faith. So later he has a discussion with uh, Tolkien and Hugo Dyson. Also mem- he was also a member of the Inklings. And, and through that discussion with Tolkien, he came to realize and came to understand that Jesus was, the, he, in his words, myth become fact. And he writes in a letter uh, the following. Now what Dyson and Tolkien showed me was this, that if I met the idea of sacrifice in a pagan story, I didn't mind it at all. Again, that if I met the idea of a god sacrificing himself to himself, I liked it very much and was mysteriously moved by it. Again, that the idea of the dying, reviving god like Baldur, Adonis, or Bacchus similarly moved me to revive I met anywhere except the Gospels. The reason was that in the pagan stories, I was prepared to feel the myth as profound and suggestive meaning beyond my grasp, even though I could not say it in cold prose what it meant. He knew it was false, right? He knew it was a story. In the mind, say, said, All right, no, these, these redemptive stories are false, and I'm just enjoying them. But then I come to this gospel, and I have this tension. Now the story of Christ is simply a true myth, a myth working on us in the same way, but with a tremendous difference. That, and here's words it really happened, okay? It's not a myth, it's not a story, it's truth, C.S. Lewis said. It really happened. Nine days after this discussion, nine days after he wrote this letter, and nine days after he talks to Tolkien about Christ, he's on a buggy ride to go to a new zoo opening. When he starts that ride, he's an unbeliever. By the time he gets to the zoo, he's a believer. And he writes that, he says, When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But when I reached the zoo, I did. And later he writes about his conversion to Christianity. Not only that he believed in God, but that Jesus is the Son of God and died for him. We have to trust God's sovereign plan. He has it in place. And because of that, we can, second application, we can persevere on God's path. Notice I didn't say my path, right? I didn't say the city of Brian's path. I said persevere on God's path. And it's an interesting path. It's both hard and glorious. One pastor said the path to glory is through death, right? And we're going to see that. So go back up to verses 25 through 26, Whoever loves his life, loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. My dying for your salvation, Jesus is saying, is also my design for your imitation. You are to imitate me. You need to be prepared to become like me. He who loves his life and hates it shall keep it for life eternal. Anyone who serves me, let him follow me. Where are we following Jesus? At this statement, where are we following him? They're following him to Gethsemane and Calvary and to the grave. And where I am, they shall my servants be also. Where is Jesus gonna be? In the presence of Father glory. if anyone serves me a father will honor him we see jesus and understand him by his word and his actions just like the people here in jerusalem and he says i'm going to go to glory and i'm going to bear much fruit and the way i'm going to do that is hating my life in this world and suffering and dying for you and then he says by the way follow me <laughs> how's that for evangelism i'm gonna go die and suffer Why don't you come along with me? Hate your life in this world. Serve me. Well, you see, this is the hard part, right? So in in verses 24 through 26, he's talking about all this wheat, and the wheat is us, right? And there's four hard things. Death, you're going to die. That's a hard thing. Second, I want you to hate this world. That's a hard thing, right? There's things in this world I enjoy, right? But I'm not supposed to enjoy them more than following Christ, right? I'm supposed to hold loosely. Third thing, Jesus calls us to follow him on his Calvary road leading to death. This is hard to suffer like Jesus. And then, verse 26, to serve him, right? We are to take the role of a waiter at his table to do his bidding, no matter what is demanded or how lowly the status. This is hard for us. These four hard things. But that's all he requires, what he asks us to do. And if we do that, there's four glorious things we get. Verse 24 says, the sea must die. However, what happens? It bears fruit. That's a good thing, a glorious thing. Verse 25, we love our life, we lose it. But if we hate this world, what's the outcome? Christ said eternal life. That's a good, glorious thing. Yes, we must follow him in the Calvary. But Jesus said, if you follow him in the Calvary, he will be with me in glory. In verse 26b, we are to become his servants. Anybody serves me, it says, the Father will glorify him or honor him. Those are four glorious things, right? So don't miss the glory and the overflowing joy in this hard life of being a Christian. Yes, it's hard. We're in a a sinful, cursed world. We die, we hate our lives in this world, we follow Jesus on the Calvary road, we become servants. But when we do this, we find that we bear much fruit, we have eternal life, we join Jesus where he is in glory, and the Father honors honors us. So persevere on that path. But Charles, I, I'm suffering through things. Yes, I know. Bible says we will. Though I walk through th- with you through the valley of shadow death, not over or around it, but through it. We are going to suffer. There are going to be things that we have to overcome, but Jesus is with us. Persevere for those four glorious things. And finally, when we do that, we get to be sons and daughters of light. Last application. my voice is fading. (laughs) These sons and daughters of light. So this doctrine of light is very central to the gospel, right? We know light is goodness, God's essence. Darkness is evil. Not good, unholy. And we are called to what? We are called to have light emanating lives. We are to glow, right? Light is supposed to be flowing from us. And Jesus himself tells us the sons of light are those who come to faith in him, are born again, and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. All three are required, by the way. Let me read them again. Faith in him, born again, and indwelt with the Holy Spirit. That's in verse 36. If you do that, you're a son and daughter of light. You're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And God is light, and there is no darkness in him. We saw that in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. So, if the light of God abides in us as believers, should that light not also shine through us and through all of our actions? Did you hear what I said? If God's light abides in us as believers, should not that light also shine through us and through all of our actions? Answer is yes, right? It should. We're to choose daily to follow the light of Christ. We are to... Burn brightly as lights of the gospel. So I have something to help illustrate that. So with this illustration, I'm going to summarize several scripture passages into one illustration. So if you can lower the lights. So, we were dead to Christ. Right? But when we ask him to be our Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit indwells in us. Right? And we, light emanates from us. However, the Bible says we can quench the Spirit. right? We can not listen to his guidance. We can not love one another. We can get angry. Or we could even have some sin that we're entangled with that we're not willing to give up. What happens to the light? It's not as bright, is it? It's quenched. That's not what God wants, right? He does want us to quench the Spirit by doing those things. How about our fuel of the light? How about if we're not in God's Word daily? It's Not as bright, right? Because we're not abiding with God. How about if we're not praying to him, talking to him? We're quenching the spirit, right? It's not as dark. It's never going to be blank, right? Because you can never lose your salvation. But you're not going to be as bright as God wants you to be. Romans 13, you can turn the lights back on. Verse 12 through 14 says, The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off works of darkness. And what? Put on the armor of light. See, God wants us to be not cut off from this source. I challenge you, you should crave, you should desire, you should want to do nothing else but spend time in his word daily. If you're not, I'm going to challenge your heart. Are you following Christ? Are you abiding with him? Are you praying with him? How can the light be fueled if we are not connected with God the Father? Because see, prayer doesn't change God. He's immutable. He doesn't change. Prayer changes us, right? It aligns our will with his. So in closing, as the worship team comes up, I started with this Uno wild card that changes the color of a card stack. I'm going to ask you tonight, will you let Jesus be your wild card to change aspects in your life? Perhaps like C.S. Lewis, you need to make a decision that Jesus really happened, as the Bible says. And you need to make him your Lord and Savior in your life. See, C.S. Lewis was a learned man, right? Steeped in all the philosophies and literature. But he finally came to the point and says, Jesus, this this really happened, and I put my trust in him. Perhaps you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, But you've not taken steps in obedience to be baptized. Jesus has modeled for us submission and obedience to God the Father. I just ask you to do likewise, to provide your testimony through baptism. Perhaps you're stuck in a rut of the hardness of life. I know the journey is in a cursed world, and it's hard. Maybe it's sickness and finances, relationships, or all the above. Seek God for deliverance and perseverance. Trust him. Perhaps you are a son and daughter of light, but your light is not shining as brightly as it should. You need to repent. You need to cease from quenching the spirit. You need to replug into abiding with Christ through daily prayer and daily Bible reading. Finally, perhaps you've been resisting the spirit and joining this local body of believers. We call Living Hope Brian. Don't quench the spirit. Don't miss out on this church loving you and equipping you and you encouraging us and blessing us. We're about to sing, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. And he is. Let him speak to you about these things. What does the wild card need to do to your life tonight? Don't resist. Respond to Jesus.